Hello, I'm Hilary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. Welcome to Talking Cyber, a Cybercrime Radio segment where we discuss the latest news and breaking stories of the cyber economy, hackers, intrusions, privacy, security, and much more. Joining us today is Heather Engel, Managing Partner of Strategic Cyber Partners. Heather, welcome. Always great to be speaking with you. Hey, Hillary. How are you? I am great. How are you? Good. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Heather, another episode of Talking Cyber for us. And and to start off today's conversation, pretty crazy story. For weeks this fall, the government of Suffolk County on Long Island in New York was basically plunged back into the 1990s, which maybe with what, you know, everybody thinks the 90s are cool again. So maybe everybody might think that's cool, but it's not. <laughs> um, not in this case, because they suffered a malicious ransomware attack that forced the county offline, the county government, and they had a frantic push to counter the threat, which hobbled the county, and they disabled email for 10,000 civil service workers and scrubbed infected hardware, but they were trying to stem the fallout from the, the compromised systems, but it's been more than two months after the attack, and some of their systems and the gears that run much of Long Island are still kind of mired down in, in all of that aftermath. So I guess with that quick background and feel free to fill in any blanks that I may have missed, you know, handing it over to you to take us through this. I mean, what's going on here? What more should we know? And what are the implications? Yeah, there's so much to talk about with this story. And it's a great article in the New York Times. It's pretty long, but you know, it covers and really just unpacks issues that plague so many municipalities. And I will say, reading through this article, Suffolk County had actually done probably more than most local governments and municipalities to prepare for a cyber attack. And they were still having to go or use what we call the go nuclear option, right? So when you're dealing with a ransomware attack, the first thing that you want to do is try to contain it by taking specific systems offline. And what they ended up having to do when I say they used the go nuclear option is they disconnected from the internet. And that meant that everyone that was employed there had to go back to doing things without the internet, without a computer. And it talks about in the article, you know, how they dusted off binders with procedural instructions to do things. And, you know, they joked about teaching some of the younger employees how to use a fax machine. You know, anytime you are dealing with a ransomware, like I said, you're always working to contain it with as minimal impact to the business as possible. And even though they had prepared, even though they thought that they had done a lot to prepare for a ransomware attack, they still were hit really hard. And, you know, there's a couple things to look at here. One, it's great that they had and they were able to employ some of those procedures that they had not used in probably 20 or more years. But we also have to look at you know, the scope of services. And one of the things that we try to do for our clients is we look at what's the risk across the business and do they have what we call a flat network, right? Is everything connected or do we have some segments between different aspects of the business, you know, maybe trying to isolate some of the more critical business services. And, you know, we don't have a lot of information on what their network looked like. We know that there were a few things that they did not have. For example, multi-factor authentication is something that can always 
reduce the impact and the likelihood of a ransomware attack. Even that isn't perfect. There's so much to look at here in terms of not only how they dealt with it, but if we look at it from a broader scope of the industry, you know, how many municipalities would be as prepared as Suffolk County was, and they still had to go offline for a pretty significant amount of time. Yeah, that's wild. And good luck to everyone who's learning to use a fax machine. <laughs> right, right. Uh, <laughs> I was there for it originally, and I still yeah. don't trust them. <laughs> I know. I know. I loved the um, old like fax machine scams. Actually, that was like when I my first office job. They would just like you know send you an invoice for toners or whatever. But anyway, with that and thinking about how Suffolk County was more equipped than other counties for this type of attack, but they still had to go offline. I mean, and I know that you you know you covered you know how you help folks plan for things like this, but like thinking about the Suffolk counties out there who think that they're super well prepared, is there anything more that they should be doing in addition to what they've done? Is there anything else they can do with these types of attacks? I'm just thinking about that. Yeah. You know, I mean, state governments and local governments generally don't have the resources to respond or even to prepare for this the way that a corporation would. They just don't. You know, they're funded by taxpayer dollars for the most part. And cybersecurity is complex and it's expensive. And the people that do the work are generally expensive, right? You're not going to find people who are the best of the best for what a lot of municipalities can afford to pay salary-wise. So one of the things that we talk to our clients about and that we try to teach them is you're not going to protect everything the same way. So you have some business processes that are more critical than others, and there are some things that could pretty easily be done in an offline way versus some other things that might be really hard to do. And you don't have to, you know, hire an outside firm to conduct this type of business analysis. You can do it internally. One of the harder parts or one of the harder things to figure out is is who should own it, right? Who within the county has the ability and the know-how to own this and kind of go through that business continuity planning process. But, you know, cybersecurity comes down to the ability to protect your business processes and make sure that your business can continue to function, whether we're talking about you know, a corporation or a local government or a nonprofit. And so looking at you know, the resources that are available to local governments, I think you have to spend some time identifying what are your most critical functions, and then looking at what your most critical points of failure would be. There are things that you can do. It's never going to be perfect. Obviously, one of the things that I think is key is once you've figured that out, putting some monitoring in place to understand when attacks are happening so that you can catch them early, you know, before it potentially cascades through all of your systems will go a long way towards minimizing the damage, right? And that's always the goal when we find ourselves under attack is minimize the damage, get the business back up and running as quickly as possible, but do it in a way that we can be comfortable going forward that our data still isn't compromised or that our network isn't compromised. You're listening to Talking Cyber. I'm your host, Hillary McClure. Joining me today is Heather Engel, Managing Partner at Strategic Cyber Partners. Okay, well then I guess next story for us 
revolves around critical infrastructure, which is always a hot topic, unfortunately. And this one's specific to offshore drilling operations, which are vulnerable to cyber attacks. A watchdog warns and the sources next gov and basically threats to our critical infrastructure extend to the over 1600 offshore oil and drilling facilities that support our country's fuel economy. And they're just as much at risk of cyber attacks as onshore utility facilities, according to this new government report. And in the report, there's a quote saying, you know, future successful cyber attacks against offshore oil and gas infrastructure could have severe consequences. And that's pretty heavy. So Heather, I guess, take us through how this would happen, what these consequences could be. Just kind of tell us about this story further. Yeah. Well, the U.S. government identifies 16 critical infrastructure sectors, and it's everything from financial to food and agriculture to energy, the defense industrial base, which is what we typically think of as the DOD. And all of those different things are critical infrastructure. Energy is one. And that's what we're talking about in this story. The thing to take away here is what we have a tendency to see, especially when we talk about energy, is there are a lot of legacy systems that run some of these drilling operations. And so we're saying offshore drilling operations are vulnerable to cyber attacks. Part of that is because we use a lot of legacy systems in something like this. And one of the concerns is not only a disruption in operations, but also kinetic attacks. And when we talk about kinetic attacks, what we mean is the use of a cyber attack to have a physical impact on a system. So I'll give you an example. If we're talking about this, a cyber attack on a drilling rig could potentially, let's say we cause it to drill too deeply or too fast or to burn up the rig. That's just one example, right? We've seen other kinetic attacks on other critical infrastructures, including shipping, where a GPS was attacked and it was modified and it made the ship go off course. So when we say kinetic attacks, that's what we mean. There's a physical, you know, there's a visible impact versus what we don't see you know, with just a cyber attack where we're pulling data out of a system maybe, or we're causing a system to go down. And that's one of the big concerns when we talk about critical infrastructure, particularly in the energy sector. You know, is there a potential to cause an oil spill? And it specifically says in this article that there is a potential for physical, environmental, as well as economic harm. So I think that's one of the things that, you know, we have to look at with some of these critical infrastructure sectors is what can we do to protect those legacy systems? And I referenced this a little bit in our last story when we're talking about local governments and just segmenting systems away from other systems. If you have a system that is really critical to keeping things running, and let's say it's a legacy system, you can't update it, you know that there's vulnerabilities to it, you have to put more protection around it, whether that means isolating it. Maybe it's a system that doesn't need to be online 24-7. And maybe you only bring it online and connected to the internet when it's in use, right? That's one technique that you can use. You can put more monitoring in place where you're auditing events that are happening on that system. You can really lock down who has the ability to access that in a number of different ways. And so those are the things that you have to look at because nobody has unlimited resources, right? We talked about local governments not having the resources. When we look at critical infrastructures, 
again, some of those are government organizations. Some of them might be, you know, commercial companies, but nobody has unlimited resources to put towards cybersecurity. And if you have a legacy system, it can take millions of dollars in several years to even design a replacement for those systems, let alone get them in place and functioning. So you have to do things in the meantime. You can't just wait for the legacy system to be replaced. And this is something we see across critical infrastructure sectors. Wow. I never would have thought about that. Like if I'm, you know, somewhere where I can see an offshore drilling rig, I never would have thought of this, but that's wild. You know, when you look at the critical infrastructure sectors and when you really start to think about it, it can be pretty scary, right? Water is considered one of the critical infrastructure sectors, transportation systems. And if you think about you know, the ability to start and stop the flow of water, let's say for a dam. Mm. And that is something that is an online task. What if I'm an attacker and I go in and and I attack a system with the intent of flooding a valley or, you know, stopping the water flow that is irrigating crops? I mean, there's there's a lot of damage that you can do when you really start to think about how connected everything is. Wow. Well, Hopefully things will get better for critical infrastructure and our government (laughs) spending and legacy systems. But yeah, that's, that is a lot of work and a lot. Yeah, that's just a lot. But yeah, um, one of the things with these news stories, you know, is we look at them and we unpack what's being written, but there's almost always a deeper component mm. that you can look at and think about. And that's what we really like to do with our conversations, right? Yeah. Kind of give our listeners that little bit of depth. And this is definitely one that if you haven't worked in a critical infrastructure sector, you know, that might not be the first thing that you think about, but it is something that's really important to understanding the risk to these industries. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Heather, as always, just thank you so much for joining me on Talking Cyber and sharing with us your expertise on these two stories we covered today. And I'm looking forward to next time. Thank you very much. Good to talk with you as always. I'm Hillary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. Talking Cyber is a Cybercrime Radio segment that discusses the latest news and breaking stories of the cyber economy, hackers, intrusions, privacy, security, and much more. To keep up with the latest security and privacy news updated daily, visit us at cybercrimewire.com.